Welcome as we are one week away from Christmas. Just curious how many of you out there, you're ready to go. You've got everything done. This is going to be an easy, smooth, peaceful week. You've got, you're all prepped and ready. How many? Uh, not a lot. So how many are you, this is going to be the worst week of the year for you. You've got a million things left to do and you haven't hardly gotten to any of them. But this week is going to be stressful and challenging. A few, a few. Or whichever camp you're in, most of you seem to be somewhere in the middle maybe. Um, thank you for taking the time to join with us this morning and take this time out of that schedule to be with us today. If you happen to be new or you're visiting with us, uh, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we are in our Advent series that we are working through this month. <clears throat> and um, as we are looking at some of the characters in the Christmas story and looking at what we can learn from them and their experiences. And so today, uh, we're looking at a passage in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And the title of the message today and the story we're looking at today is The Visit of the Magi. Well, some of you might be familiar with an old party game called Telephone. Anybody ever heard of Telephone or played Telephone? Oh, yeah, everybody's played Telephone. So if, if you're not familiar with Telephone, I mean, I can remember playing Telephone a few times over my life in different group settings, but if you're not familiar with it, here's kind of how it works. You, you have a group of people, and normally the bigger the group, the better, usually for the way this works, and you, you kind of sit in a circle usually, and somebody begins the game by whispering in the person's next to them ear and describes some brief story, event, or situation to them. And then they turn around and whisper that into the ear of the next person, and so on and so on and so on until it goes around to the end. And at the end, the last person shares out loud what the story that they heard was. And obviously the point of the game and what makes it kind of fun is how different the final version is from the one that started in the game. It can be startling at times how different it is. And really, you know, when it comes to the story of the visit of the Magi or the wise men in our text for today in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, I mean, we might wonder whether somewhere somebody has played telephone with this story over the years. Because much of what modern tradition would tell us about this story simply doesn't seem to be true. If we could pull up that picture, please. So this is often the way the wise men are depicted, right? Uh, we see them. This is what it looks like on Christmas cards or images we see this time of year. But the honest truth is most of what we see in this picture isn't really accurate. I mean, we could start, for example, with the old Christmas carol, We Three Kings, right? Um, there is nothing in the story that would indicate these magi were kings. As a matter of fact, they almost certainly weren't. And you can see that they're kind of depicted that way in that picture. Uh, but this tradition seemed to develop sometime during the Middle Ages. There is also no evidence to the idea that there were three of them. Uh, the Eastern Church said there were 12, while the Western Church settled on three. And the bottom line is we... We really don't know how many magi came 
to Jerusalem on this occasion. What we do know is that they would likely have been a large entourage of people because it would have taken many people with all the things that needed to be done to go on a journey of this kind of distance. And the gifts that the Magi brought, which we can see in that picture, they have often been associated with specific prophetic meanings, including foretelling the death of Jesus on the cross. And this, too, is likely far more conjecture than reality. So what can we know about these Magi and the other characters in this story? And what, what does this story have to say to us in our world here today. And so in our time this morning, as we look at this text, I really want to do just two simple things. I want to take a closer look at the story and the characters that we meet in it. And then secondly, I want to look at what God is saying to us today through this story of the visit of the Magi. So before we do that, let's take a moment and ask God for his help. Well, Lord, as we come to you this morning, Lord, uh, we come in need freshly of your grace and the presence of your spirit with us. Lord, this season that we're in of the, the birth of your son, it can become just so familiar to us. Lord, we've heard the story a million times. We get caught up in all the other things going on during this time of year. And Lord, we can really lose the significance of just the wonder of what you did in sending your son into this world. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at this passage of Scripture that you would meet us in this time in the grace and power of your Spirit. Lord, you would help me. You would give me grace and strength to speak clearly and plainly your word. And you would, Lord, help all of us to benefit and be blessed by this account that you've included in your holy word. So do that, we ask, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin by just reading through this passage in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, get a feel for it, and then we'll go back and dig into it a little bit. So now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So let's begin with looking a little bit about what we can know about this story. So in verse 1, we are introduced to two of the three main characters in the story. In verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So these events took place sometime after Jesus' birth, probably sometime between several months and up to two years after he was born. Verse 11 gives us a clue to that as the wise men reach Bethlehem and where Jesus is. It says in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So they are no longer, they're still in Bethlehem, but they are no longer in the stable and the manger. They have apparently moved into a house in the area by now. And it would have taken many months for the wise men to get here. And so it makes sense that this is sometime after. And so um, I hate to break it to you, but all those nativity scenes with the wise men showing up at the manger. We got one at home. They're just incorrect. Just one more example of playing telephone with this story. Because there was no way the wise men ever showed up at the manger scene. So who are these magi? Well, the magi, or wise men as they were sometimes called, they were students of the stars. They were skilled in the arts of astrology and astronomy. They studied sacred writings and interpreted dreams. And they often played prominent roles in the courts of kings and rulers. But they were not kings themselves. We actually run into them in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel has interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in and says this to him in Daniel 2.48. Says then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. So there they are. So this tradition of the magi or wise men, it goes back hundreds of years before this time when they come to Jerusalem. And the text in verse 1 tells us that they were from the east most likely Babylon or possibly Persia. And if you think about it, this kind of makes sense because if their tradition does go back hundreds of years, then they would have encountered the exiles from Israel when they were exiled into Babylon, and Babylon was later conquered by the Persians. And so the Magi would have run into people like Daniel. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament Jewish scriptures. They would have studied them and known what was contained in them. And so they were Gentiles who have made this long trip to seek the one who they say in verse 2 has been born king of the Jews. 
And their journey, as I said, has likely taken several weeks or even months because they have traveled probably some 900 miles or so to get to their destination. And their studies have led them to believe that a great leader has been born in Judea. In verse 2, it says, For we saw his star when it rose. In those days, a new star was often seen as heralding the birth of some great leader. And we don't know exactly what this star was, whether it was some astronomical event, some conjunction of planets or something else. No one's ever been able to discover for sure exactly what the star they saw was. But their study of the stars, along with their study of the Jewish scriptures, would have led them to conclude that this was a very significant moment. I mean, it's very possible that in their study of the events that were happening, they saw in this the fulfillment of the prophecy that Balaam had made way back in the time of Moses in Numbers 24:17. In Numbers 24:17, Balaam is prophesying about a great leader who would one day arise out of Israel, and he says this, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. And so these wise men, they believe these events are coming to pass, and so they have made this long journey to search for this leader that has been born. And so when they arrive in Judea, they would naturally go to Jerusalem, that is the capital city, to check this out. And so as they enter the city of Jerusalem, we meet the second key character in this story, and that's Herod the Great. Now Herod had been installed as king of Judea by the Romans over 30 years before this, sometime around 40 B.C., and most scholars would agree that Herod was not a Jew by birth, but he married into a prominent Jewish family, likely as a means to curry favor with the Jewish people. And he was known as a great builder, was responsible for many major building projects. He built a number of major, huge fortresses across the land of Judea, and perhaps most notably began the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. But he was also a cruel and ruthless tyrant. And as he grew older, he became increasingly paranoid and fearful about any threat to his rule or attempt to undermine his throne. And his political escapades, they would have really made for a great movie. I mean, just to give you a little bit of a sampling, he had his wife's brother, who was the high priest, drowned, and then sponsored a magnificent funeral for him where he pretended to weep in feigned grief. He then later had his wife herself killed and two of their sons. He had them executed because he feared they were plotting against him. He also had his wife's mother and grandfather killed. And five days before his death, he had his firstborn son executed. 
I mean, these are just some of the family members and associates that Herod, that Herod did away with. The Roman Emperor Augustus is quoted as saying about Herod's paranoia even within his own family. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. In other words, see, a pig was unlawful for Jewish people to eat, so a pig was pretty safe. And a pig was a lot safer than being one of Herod's son, I think is the point. And if you want a really revealing picture of what Herod was like, as he lay sick and dying at the end of his life, and I mean, if there was ever a death that you would wonder if God's judgment was on this, I mean, Herod's death was about as horrific as you could imagine. I mean, he, he was dying from some very excruciating disorder of the kidneys and colon, and he also had contracted gangrene, and the gangrene had become infested with maggots in places that we won't mention. And so Herod literally died by being eaten alive by worms. But as he was sick and nearing death, because he feared that no one would mourn his death because he was that hated, he ordered that all of the most prominent citizens in Judea be arrested and imprisoned in a large theater in Jericho. And he gave orders to have every one of them executed at the moment of his death so that there would be mourning in Judea when he died. Now, fortunately, his relatives, after he died, refused to have that order carried out. But that's a little bit of a picture of Herod the Great. And so it seems then that these magi were asking around Jerusalem for news about this newborn king, and Herod apparently hears about it. It says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. If you get a glimpse of the person that Herod was, you might not be surprised that the word troubled is probably a bit too weak of a translation to capture the true nature of his response. In turmoil or highly agitated or even terrified might be closer to the actual meaning. And the words of the Magi, I think, are particularly significant in verse 2 as they describe this newborn leader not as one who was born to be king, but as one who has been born king of the Jews. See, this is not someone who might become king one day. This is a king from their birth. This is one who has a true, legitimate claim to the throne of Judea, even from his birth. And this can only be the promised one who was to come, the Messiah. And Herod knew what these words meant. And that these words would have troubled Herod? Oh, that's quite an understatement. So if you get a sense of who Herod was, you can also understand why all Jerusalem was troubled as well, because everybody was fearing for their safety, because no one could predict what Herod might do in response to this new threat to his rule. 
And Herod's initial response is to call together the chief priests and the scribes to try to find out where this Messiah King was to be born. That's what it says in verse 4. It says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so here we meet the third set of characters in this story, the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests, they were the most important leaders among all the priests who served in Jerusalem. They were responsible for the oversight of the sacrifices and all the religious activities in that day. And the scribes were really the lawyers of that day. They were experts in the Jewish scriptures and the law of Moses. But really, practically speaking, the religious system at that time had deteriorated into being more of a political arm of Herod to keep peace with the people than a true system of worship. And most of these leaders were appointed or put into their positions by Herod himself. And so this news of the birth of this Messiah King would have been troubling to them as well because it could be a threat to their privileged place and position and even their lives. I didn't mention, but Herod had also had about 50 of the religious leaders and rabbis executed during his reign as well. So these chief priests and scribes have reason to be troubled also. But they readily know the answer to Herod's question about where the Christ is to be born. In verses 5 and 6, it says, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And in what they tell him, they are somewhat loosely quoting the prophet Micah from Micah 5, verse 2, which says this. The prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so armed with this knowledge, Herod summons the Magi in secret. He shares with them what the chief priests and scribes have told him about Bethlehem. Tells us this in verses 7 and 8. says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You see, he has already determined that he's going to put an end to this threat and kill this child. He wants to know how old this child might be so that he can make sure that he doesn't miss in his attempt to do away with him. And it is simply an outright lie that he tells them about wanting to come and worship him too. But you see, they don't know that. And so they assume he wants to honor this newborn king as they do. And so they go on their way to search for the child in Bethlehem. As we pick up in verses 9 and 10, 
It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And you know, however we might try to explain the star they saw that brought them to Judea on this quest, there is just no natural explanation for what we see here in verse 9. There is no astronomical phenomena that can even begin to make sense of the words in this verse. Because the language is very specific here. This star somehow moved and went before them and stopped over the house where Jesus was. I mean, it literally moved and directed them to a specific local place. No natural star or astronomical event can do that. And there's been much debate over what this could have been. Some think it was an angel or some supernatural light. Some think it was the glory of God shining in some way to guide them to this house. Maybe similar to the way the pillar of fire guided the Israelites through the desert in the Exodus. We just don't know. Whatever it was... It was clearly some supernatural work of God that was used to lead them directly to this house. Whatever this was, God literally used it as a GPS to bring them to this specific place. And the Magi, they seem to know that this is some amazing supernatural work of guidance because in verse 10 they say, when they, it says, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, they haven't even got to the house yet. They haven't even seen the child yet. When they just see this star, it says, whatever it was, they were so amazed by it. It says they they were overwhelmed with joy. And the language here is, is again, it's it's pretty unique because in the original language, repetition is often used to create emphasis. So, for instance, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, his repetition of truly is placing emphasis. What he's saying is, hey, this is something you need to listen to because this is really true. And so in this verse 10, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. A threefold repetition was the greatest emphasis that you could place on something. See, they rejoiced, but they didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly, but they didn't just rejoice exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were overwhelmed with joy at what God was doing and directing them on this journey. And so when they arrive at the house where Jesus is, they go in, they present their gifts and fall down before him and worship him. So we finish up with verses 11 and 12. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
And so the gifts they gave, they were precious things. They were fitting gifts for royalty. But they probably didn't have any more specific meaning in what they were than that. They would have been similar to other gifts given to royalty in other historical records of that time. And so we don't know how long they stayed there at the house with Jesus and his family. But God, being perfectly aware of Herod's evil intent, warns the Magi in a dream not to go back to report to him. And so they heed his warning and go back to their own country by a different route to avoid running into him. So that's a little bit about what we can know about this story of the Magi's visit. And so the question is, what does this story say to us in our world today? And that brings us to the second thing we just want to take some time to look at, and that is, what is God saying to us in this story? And I think there are three things that we can draw from this story that speak to our lives today. And the first one is that Jesus has come to be a king for all people. Matthew includes this story in his gospel for a very specific reason. He wants us to see that through that though Jesus was born king of the Jews, he is not just the king and savior for the Jews. He is a king and savior for all people. And these Gentile magi that came from hundreds of miles away to present him gifts and worship him, they tell us that Jesus has come to be a king and a savior for everyone who will receive him as their king. You see, this story is really a picture of what the future would be, where Jesus would be worshipped by people of all nations and tongues. And this story tells us that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what ethnicity or nationality you may be, Jesus has come to be a king and a savior for you. And God has sent him into this world to be a king and savior for all who will see him and respond to him in their hearts as these magi did. The second thing I think this story says to us in our day is that in it we see God's sovereign power in the midst of human weakness and vulnerability. I mean, Jesus is a king, but he has come into this world as a baby. And in that state, he could not be more vulnerable and helpless. His parents are poor. I mean, they have no wealth or prominence to guard his safety. He has no army, no court attendants to protect him. He could not be in a more helpless and vulnerable place. And he is opposed by the most powerful human forces that were present in that situation. Herod, with all his power and resources, is determined to destroy this child. And his track record would tell us that he has been ruthlessly successful 
in dealing with these types of threats at times in the past. And that doesn't even consider that all the supernatural powers of darkness that are present in this world are zeroed in and focused on this moment in history. They know what the coming of this child means. This is God's promised Messiah, the serpent crusher who would destroy the works of the devil and his rule over this fallen world. I mean, don't think for a minute that these, those powers aren't aware and intent on eliminating this threat to the kingdom of darkness. And this combination of human and spiritual opposition to this helpless child, it would seem to be no contest. And we can see their evil and Herod's horrific response when the wise men don't report back to him as he had requested. We see it in Matthew 2.16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that it had been ascertained from the wise men. Yet even in the reality of all of this powerful opposition, God is in perfect sovereign control to fulfill his purposes in the midst of human weakness and vulnerability. God keeps this little child safe from Herod and those who would want him dead. He warns the Magi in a dream not to go back to Herod to tell him where the child is. God knows what Herod is about to do. He warns Joseph in a dream to take the child and flee to Egypt. Tells us that in verse 13, right after our passage in Matthew 2.13, it says, Now when they, the wise men, had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And you know, God likely used the gifts given them by the Magi to fund their flight and stay in Egypt. See, God is in perfect sovereign control, even in the midst of our greatest human weakness and vulnerability. And you know, that truth should be a comfort to our lives. In all those times when we feel weak and vulnerable and inadequate, God's sovereign power is in perfect control of our lives as well. And if you find yourself in that kind of place today, or if you're not there today, you probably will be at some point. Then be encouraged. Because God's sovereign power is watching over your life in the same way that he was watching over Jesus in this story. No matter how dark or difficult things in your life might seem, there is nothing that can affect your life that isn't filtered through God's love and commitment to your ultimate good and the fulfillment of his purposes for you. 
And there's one more thing I think this story speaks to us today. And that is in this story of the Magi, we see really three different responses to Jesus coming by the different characters we encounter in this story. And these three responses, they really reflect the same three ways people respond to Jesus today. And the first one is we see in Herod. Herod saw Jesus as a threat. He was a threat to his way of living and the things he loved and tried to hold on to so hard. And as a result, he wanted nothing to do with him as king and savior. To him, he was an unwelcome intrusion into the life that he valued. And you know, we too can see Jesus' claim to be king and savior to us as a threat in our lives. We can see his call on our lives to trust and follow him as Lord and Savior, a threat to the things that we love. We can love our sin and the things of this world so much that we see him as a threat to the way we want to live our lives. And we don't want him telling us what to do or how to live. And the idea of turning from our sin and how we're living to follow him, that's the last thing we want to do. And if we see him that way, then we too will be hostile toward him and reject him as a king and savior for us. And when we respond that way, we're choosing to walk the same path that Herod walked in this story. But the second response we see in this story is that of the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. Now you would think that if anybody would be excited and enthusiastic about this news of the Messiah being born, that it would have been them, right? I mean, they were the experts in the Old Testament and the prophetic writings. They immediately knew the facts about the Messiah and where he would be born. And this is the promise the Jewish people have been waiting for centuries to be fulfilled. Yet their response is surprisingly one of indifference. I mean, Bethlehem is only about five or six miles from Jerusalem. And yet they show no interest in going there to see if this is even true. Despite this being the most important event in the religious history of the Jewish people, they make no effort to even investigate it. They simply don't seem to really care. I mean, and that is also how we can respond to the news about Jesus and who he was and why he came. We can simply be indifferent. Yeah, we've heard the Christmas story countless times. Yes, people have shared the gospel message with us at times, but it just doesn't seem to have any real significance or meaning to our lives. And this idea of a king and savior who came to rescue us 
from our sins and grant us a place in heaven. It just doesn't connect or register with us. It just doesn't have any real relevance in the way we see our lives. And so we reject the call of this Jesus to trust and follow him. Because truthfully, we just really don't see it as having any real value. And like those religious leaders, we're indifferent to the greatest news in the history of humanity. But there is a third response we see in this story, in the response of the Magi. They paid attention to these things about the promised coming of this king. And when the time came, they did whatever was necessary to come to him. And there was no cost too great to keep them from coming to see this child. And when they came, they recognized him for who he was, and they worshipped him. They offered him gifts that were meant to honor him. They understood that this Jesus was born king of not just the Jews, but he was a king for all people. And they gladly received him and rejoiced in what his coming meant for them and all humanity. I mean, maybe God's telling us something here when they're called wise men in this story. And so the question for each of us as we listen today to this account is which, which of these responses would characterize our lives? Which of these responses would characterize your life? I mean, would you see Jesus as a threat to the things you love and want to hold on to and don't want to lose in life? Or would you just be indifferent? You just doesn't seem like it's that important. Or would you be like these magi who see and understand who he is and why he came and they worship him as the king and savior that he was? If I could have the worship team come. <clears throat> you know, as we consider this story, it's probably true that these magi, they, don't, they probably don't grasp the full meaning of Jesus coming to this earth. I mean, they knew that a great leader had been born into this world, and they came to worship and honor him as that great leader and king. But they probably didn't understand the meaning of what the angel said like to Joseph and Mary about this child that he would be the divine son of God and that he would save his people from their sins. Their study of the Old Testament scriptures and other sources would likely not have foreseen the fullness of what that would mean. And you know, really, as those like us living today who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have the advantage of looking back in light of the fuller revelation of what Jesus came to do. You see, we know that he didn't just come to be a king, but he came to walk a road to die. That he came to give himself on a cross to die in the place of sinners like you and me. 
that the perfect righteous king would stand in our place, the criminal, who deserves to be judged for our sins. And he would take those sins upon himself and bear the cost of them so that God might extend forgiveness and mercy to us. And so for those who will see him for who he is, who will turn from living for yourself in sin and turn to follow him and put your trust and hope in him as your Lord and Savior, then he promises the forgiveness of all our sins and a place in his eternal kingdom where we will share in the infinite joy and delight of being in God's presence forever. You know, when we consider this story about the Magi and their worship, with what we know now about the coming of this Christ child, I mean, how much more should our hearts be filled with worship at the coming of this child? And you know, one of the ways that we can express our worship and our gratefulness for Jesus' saving work is really by participating in the sacrament of communion together. Because Jesus left us with the sacrament of communion because he wanted to leave us a way to remember, to be reminded of why he came and what he did. And so when we take the bread, we're to be reminded that this is, was his body that was broken for us, that stood in our place taking our punishment. And when we drink the cup, that it was his blood being poured out so that we might be given new life. So here at Grace Community, we practice what's called open communion, which simply means that if you've placed your personal trust in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate in this meal with us. You don't have to be a member here to do that. And so before we eat the bread and drink the cup together, I just want us to take a moment to reflect in our hearts just on the wonder of the Son of God coming into this world. That God became a man and came into this world as a baby. The divine Son of God in all his majesty took on human flesh to make a way to save people like us. So let's just listen to this song as the worship team sings and, and let our hearts meditate on these words that we might prepare our hearts for to be grateful for what Jesus has done as we take the bread and cup together. <laughs>